James. Hey, Duncan. How are you, dude? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm well. Okay, so welcome to Cloud Tricks, a podcast where Duncan and I, who have been friends for a very long time, uh, like to um, you know find something that's uh, gotten our interest as a starting point of uh, just having a conversation. So this week, we uh, well, I came upon a essay written by uh, what's well, called the Accidental Universe, which is actually a series of essays written by Alan Lightman. Uh, for those who are uninitiated, he's an American physicist um, who was actually the first person to receive a dual appointment at MIT in both the science and humanities. Uh, and so basically what it talks about is at a very high level uh, about the human or, or life in general, our desire to live forever. So I thought that would be a good way to get the ball rolling. Hmm. I think, it, I think it's really interesting, like, do you want to live forever? <laughs> uh, and sort of, sort of starting off to begin with, like when I was younger, like 13, I wanted to be older. And I don't know what the magical number was, but I sort of thought maybe it was 25. And then I assumed that old people were boring because I thought my parents were boring. <laughs> and I, I don't want to be their age. That's <laughs> um, and so I, I, this is, I don't know why, but I was like, there's some optimal age. When you're younger, you want to be older. And when you're older, you want to be younger. And I think 13-year-old Duncan probably thought that was like 25. Um, James, did you think this? Like when you were 13, did you well, think you wanted I, to be older? Or I have vivid memories in primary school, but now I was in like year six, looking at the year eight kids, thinking they, <laughs> they looked so old. <laughs> and then when I was in year eight, looking at the year 12 kids and thinking, wow, they look so old and cool. Mm. You know, and that just kept on going. Um, like that has that that kind of stopped. I think once I left school. But I, I know I know what you're talking about in terms of like this looking forward in terms of finding that optimal age. Hmm. Yeah. So I think I did want to be uh, older, and then now I'm 35. I sure as hell don't want to be 25. <laughs> um, <laughs> seriously, if I could go back and have a good speaking to 25 year old Duncan, I would. Um, he needs a lot of things to learn. Um, <laughs> And so for me, um, I, I think I think it's in the last podcast, 20 year old Duncan only had one way to have fun, which is basically doing something silly with your mates and having a laugh about it and then watching another mate do something silly. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, that it can't be fun. I, I would say that some of the things I did, I perhaps I, I should, would now counsel against. But now we can have lots of fun, like having discussions like James and I have in this podcast, which I simply wasn't able to do as a 20 year old. Mm. And so I thought that 35 year olds were boring. But in hindsight, I didn't realize that there were different kinds of fun because I saw 35-year-olds and I thought they're not having the only kind of fun that I know how to have. Mm. Therefore, their life must be boring. But in hindsight, the, what I realized, I think, was I had a one-dimensional, one style of fun. And now I've got like, I don't know, 10 or 30 ways of having fun. And the one way of having fun as a 20-year-old doesn't really appeal to me, which is like, I don't know, have too many drinks and do something stupid. You know, that's not exactly high on my fun list. Well, in fairness for 25-year-old Duncan, like your prefrontal cortex probably wasn't fully developed like most of <laughs> us was. Um, but yeah, this is uh, super interesting. Um, I, I have, in many conversations, would hear people say like, oh, you know, to be young again, like, oh, I wish I was 18 again or 21. Mm. Um, and, and so I... I wish like, I wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would think... Nobody myself, wishes that upon us, myself or them, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I don't say out loud, but I... I, I, I I picture myself asking, like, do you actually remember what it was like when you were 18 or 21? <laughs> and uh, like, by way of example, I would walk past this group of 
what I imagine to be 18 or 21 year old, they're probably 12. I have no semblance of it. <laughs> but I just look at like how they're engaging in their social construct and I think, you know what? You can have it. I'm good. I do not want to have to go back there and do that all over again. I'm very happy where I am. Um, but also being conscious of the fact that between Duncan and I, we're highly biased in our perspective of just being at the same age of 35. So mm. it makes me think forward, like, what will 45-year-old James think? Like, would he think, like, you know what, 35-year-old James, you can have it. I'm, I'm happy at 45. Really? <laughs> um, there's an old saying, each year should be the best year of your life. Mm. Um, and whilst it's not guaranteed, I think it's possible. Um, and I honestly believe this, that, you know, I can't really remember when I was five years old, but since I've sort of, you know, got to remember, I do think each year has been better than the previous year. Now there's obviously good days and bad days, but I think my ability to experience, um, so sometimes, you know, we said this last week, let's just say your life is made up of experiences and you can actually get more out of experiences. So for instance, mm. if I read a book today versus 10 years ago, I get way more out of the same book. And I think this is partially because I can understand it from a logical perspective and from an emotional perspective significantly more than before. So effectively, each experience now has far more possibility of giving me value than before. It's not mm. a guarantee. I can definitely mess it up. But the ability to get value has gone up massively. And not just that, there were a whole lot of experiences where I had no value. Whereas now I'm like, I don't know, politics, 20-year-old Duncan. Let's not talk about that. You know, now I'm like, oh, politics, this is awesome. <laughs> you know, let's talk about what's happening in Hong Kong. Um, and so I just have wild amounts more fun. And, and each year has been better than before. And I suppose I didn't think I actually had been really doing much progressing. I think learning was done to me. I learned maths, I learned science, humanities. But I didn't learn on my own accord. It was done to me through the education system. And so the fun I had was certainly not what I did at school. It was fun hanging out with my friends. But it wasn't fun learning about whatever, maths. Mm. And so I just did not believe that there was all these other types of now, like learning is fun. Mm. I think, um, like, first of all, I completely agree with the, um, your sentiment around, um, I, I guess, from a metaphysical lens. Like in terms of growth, the more we grow through our experiences, the more enjoyable they can be based on the fact that we have much, a much richer experience uh, with those. Um, but I think in fairness to, let's say, the human condition, and anyone over the age of 65 might want to remind us, um, there's also the physical experience. And so that might be one part of uh, what we explore here in terms of, well, getting older means that your body gets older too. And the body getting older means that there are more health issues and um, the, the very, very slow degradation of your physical structure. <laughs> um, so I agree that like from a mental or metaphysical lens, like I think it's very much possible um, and doable that you can improve your livelihood. You can improve the richness and the, um, the, the variety of um, what you get out of life. But it might be at least in today's uh, technological age, a threshold where the physical start to overtake, uh, the, the physical costs start to overtake the, 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 the mental benefits, so to speak. Hmm. Um, there's, there's a model which is the biological, social, psychological model. And they say mm. to have a good life, I think we talked about this in a podcast class, you need to have all three good. Yeah. So if your biology is like, I don't know, the point where you can't do anything and you're in constant pain, you know, life's going to be pretty good. <laughs> Um, but you know, your biology can be great, but you, you social side, I don't know, 
friends, colleagues, work, etc., is, is shocking. Or you can have both of those, but then psychologically, i.e. internally, you're your own worst enemy and you go around, you know, destroying all possibility of enjoyment. Um, for me, you know, I think I'm not, you know, like my body's not as good as it was when it was 20. Uh, I've got a wrecked knee, etc. But actually, I keep it in better shape. So whilst mm. the base conditions are worse, I don't treat it as badly as I used to. <laughs> I'd like to say I actually try to treat it quite well or in the past. Um, yeah, I don't think you would necessarily describe some of the activities that I did as treating my biology very well. But I think <laughs> the, the social side um, is a sort of an interesting part. James and I have been friends for a very long time. But before, it was just like laughing about something. And that's great. Laughing's great. Or, I don't know, watching a TV show or playing you know, Monopoly or Nintendo or something. And that was great. Don't get me wrong. But I, I put it mainly in the entertainment side. But I now think that there's other parts that we do. So belonging, you know, we're friends, esteem. We, I think we support each other, uh, you know, with developing ourselves mentally, but also tell each other when we're a bit too big for our boots. Self-actualization, you know, transcendence. We'll talk about, you know, for instance, after this podcast, we listen to them and then we give each other feedback. Um, and it's wonderful because... Frankly, I think I need feedback on how I talk. And so the social side, I think, was really one-dimensional. Um, it was mm. just entertainment when I was 20. And now I've been able to slowly basically unlock more areas. So each area I unlock uh, unlocks 1.1 areas <laughs> more. And so I would argue that, that each hour I spend with James is kind of, on average, giving me more value, more enjoyment, more reason to catch up with him again in the future. Mm. And... It's sort of like, you know, there's an investment that we've had over these years. But like honestly, the, the, there wasn't, you know, it sort of was like bumbling along at 20. Like, you know, we're just friends. And now you and I can talk about things which I couldn't talk with someone else about because they're just not leveled up. So anyways, one part of it is social. And I just think my social side is wildly better than it was before. Yeah. So I think that, that um, if you look at it retroactively, everything, um, one way of saying everything served a certain purpose at each stage in your life. Right, so um, perhaps between the years of zero to five, uh, you're not focused on having fun so much as making sense of what it is to exist. <laughs> and so, as you know, as a very young baby or toddler, um, your, your your brain is spending a lot of time trying to figure out what uh, you know what the parameters of this world is for you to be able to operate within. But then between five and let's say 15 or 25 even, it does become very much socially driven, but also uh, this, uh, there's more so, I think, this, this, this diametrically opposed lens of one side learning for the sake of learning so that you can actually increase your ability to survive like from a very basic instinct. But then the other side is the, um, the direct response to that, which is fun, which is to try and actually build a, um, an experience within this world that means that you will enjoy it as much as possible. And that's, and that's why I think, you know, you know, particularly for you and me, Duncan, like, you know, fun meant some very, very one-dimensional uh, things like playing games or, you know. Um, <laughs> or it's like, like a sugar high almost. There wasn't yeah, much yeah. nutrition in it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so that to me is why I feel like I can look back and think to myself, well, I don't want to go back to that because that's not the stage I'm at in my life, um, you know, uh, ontologically, in in the sense that I've had that period of time in order to experience what I needed to, whereas now, you know, going through all of those points that you raised, Duncan, we can talk more about how can we actually create a network of support, how can we actually start discovering 
um, idea by talking to each other at a much deeper level than would it be possible on our own. And mm. so I think that's, a, that's, that's kind of like looking at this is how we kind of done well, ideally, can move through the different stages in our life. Yeah, so I suppose part of this is like, do you want to live forever? Um, and I think, can each year be better than the year before? And honestly, I think this has been the case. Um, and I suppose I was just walking along the, you know, the path that was laid out in front of me uh, up until probably early 20s. Then I started to sort of slowly diverge from the path and make my sort of own path a little bit. Mm. Um, now, it doesn't mean that each year will be better than the others, but I think the possibility is there. Um, and so this is really crucial. Um, what would you need for this year to be better than last year? And can you sort of do these things? And so to me, it's about the journey, not the destination. I'm not trying to sort of get somewhere. But I think, you know, one of the big things is having meaning in your life. Mm. Um, how's these things? So I don't know. I would say I was learning for learning's sake at school. Uh, uh, you need to like get to the next grade or whatever. And if you do better at school, you get a better job and you earn more money and earn more money is better than less money, you know, <laughs> type thing. Uh, whereas, whereas now... Um, I'm sort of attempting to learn with a purpose. I still think you definitely need entertainment and relaxation, but there wasn't really a purpose that I had derived. The purpose was earn more money, you know, or, yeah. you know, type thing or go to a better university. Whereas now I think James and I are learning and trying to improve each other when we catch up, such as in this mm. podcast, with an ability to use that learning somewhere that we value, i.e. having meaning. So meaning to me is learning plus value. Um, and before I was just learning plus no value sort of thing um, <laughs> or, or very, very shallow value, like cash money, you know, type thing. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah that's one big change from, say, 20-year-old Duncan. Yeah. So I, I agree that um, well, the, the way I would look at it is that you need to have a good model that you base your values and your beliefs on in order for you to be able to derive a increase in life satisfaction one year to the next. So uh, an example of that is, say, I think both you and I, Duncan, when we were in our early uh, 20s, were very goal-orientated, right? So, yeah, get a good job, earn more money, um, and then just put that on the flywheel and keep turning it. And so from one year to the next, you would just basically um, rate yourself on, am I closer to my goal than I was a year ago? Yes. Okay, great. Keep going. <laughs> um, where, destination was ridiculous. But, yeah. but, but, but that's exactly right. So you can, um, you can almost convince yourself, um, you know, even though without needing a destination, just by way of the fact that you have, you know, increased your income from last year. All right. So that's an improvement. Therefore, I'm in a better place. But mm. that discounts um, a whole, uh, you know, travesty of other elements that um, you know, don't play into that particular model. Whereas for me, uh, t thinking off the top of my head, a model that I find is much more, um, I guess, engaging is similar to your idea around learning um, you know, plus meaning equals purpose or whatever the, 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 um, the breakdown was. But it's really just about, have I created, am I creating something for myself where I can build on top of that, so that I can be better in terms of myself as a person, towards my, my, my partner um, and towards my children and towards my, um, you know, how I contribute back into the world. And I think that kind of perspective, you know, it's similar to the Ray Dalio pain plus reflection equals progress. So that ability to turn every experience, whether it was a positive or negative one, uh, 
inwards and reflect on that and then be able to see the growth that you have from that experience. <clears throat> Maybe one way to look at this is like, if you have a destination, are you doing life wrong? Um, mm. And so, I don't know, I, I thought, you know, that, you know, men produce, women reproduce. <laughs> you know, it's just <laughs> a, a massive oversimplification. It's like, if you're a man, you need to basically be good at earning money. Otherwise, you're not, your society doesn't value. I know you're not a man. Point yeah. <laughs> uh, and so my goal was to basically make enough money to retire uh, so I didn't have to work um, and now um, you know if you gave me $100 million tomorrow I would still work the same job and same hours etc mm. um, and that you know whereas 20 year old Doug would have been like I don't have to work holidays for the rest of my life and, and no offence but holidays for the rest of my life does not sound like a good life um, I, I, you know it sounds like something which you know whilst there's no bad there's no good it's just indifferent. I could give um, it a good crack, though. <laughs> uh, so, to me, um, I think if each year is better than the previous year, and therefore you want to continue living. So, I think that's kind of maybe a high-level goal. If you want to live forever, well, do you want to or not? And I'm like, well, if the next year is better than the current year, then I do, right? Well, how? There's not like a destination trying to get to. Like The point for me is that it's totally unfathomable that James and my relationship today you know, what, what is what it is. It's not like James' relationship with mine is the best I could imagine as a 20-year-old. It's wildly beyond that. It's totally out of the realms of conception. The things mm. that we talk about were not on the menu. Like, you know, there was only a very small amount of things on the menu for us to do as friendship activities as 20-year-olds. And so this is sort of thing, like, I don't know, just from friends, lines, like, I interact with far less people, but I interact on levels that just didn't exist before. And in my opinion, are wildly more rewarding. So that's one of the ways that I am enjoying each year more than the other. You know, I have mm. less friends, but have much deeper and, and higher value interactions, I would say. Yeah, so I think um, touching on the concept of growth or like, um, you know, progress from year to year is intrinsically tied into this uh, question that you, point, uh, you put forward a couple of um, minutes ago around like, well, you know, do we actually want to live forever and that kind of gets back to um, what inspired this uh, conversation in the first place and the first thing I would say to that is well it doesn't necessarily have to do with anybody's current liveliness or um, you know life satisfaction that would make them want to live forever I think it's um, my personal uh, take on it is that it's programmed in all of us that we just simply do not want to die right um, uh, and it's a very, very primal survival instinct. And if you and if you don't believe me, just try holding your breath until you pass out, mm. right? Because at some point, your um, your primal body, your limbic system, will take over and say, like, "No, breathe, damn you, idiot." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's a very strong, compelling um, instinctual uh, factor in within us that that is programmed to say, like, "Okay, well, I don't want you to die." Um, but then we kind of then layer on top of that stories around meanings behind that. All right. And so one example of a story um, as a meaning would be the, the religious approach of like, well, you know, if you're at least a good person while you are alive, you will get to experience eternal life afterwards kind of thing. Um, but a more literal interpretation is that there are people walking around um, on this planet at the moment who are trying to figure out ways to actually cheat death and actually figure out a way that they can live in perpetuity. Hmm. Uh, so just touching on the programming part, 
natural selection does not care about what you think. It was like the strongest survive. Uh, and, and so then we sort of layered stories around this. Um, and so as an example, um, we need to make more humans or else the human race dies out. Now, maybe we'll be able to live for one point. And so it's literally programmed into you to procreate. You will see a member of the sex that you're attracted to and you will think sexual thoughts. Like I remember pre-puberty as a boy and then post-puberty and honestly, pubescent boys are disgusting. <laughs> um, and, you know, it was like, before it was like, ooh, yeah, girl jams, you know. And then now it was like, oh, my God, girls. And, you know, <laughs> override brain, think one thing for the next half an hour and don't be able to think anything else. And so I, I used to sort of see, I don't know, sometimes, my, you know, the right person and I'm in the right mood, you know, walks by and your brain thinks, you know, procreate. Um, and then I used to think, oh, my God, I like them. I've got a crush on them. But no, it's just your biology doing what it's programmed to do. And then you're told a story. Okay, well, you need to fall in love, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I think you've got to be aware of all of the programming that your biology has inside of it to want mm. to procreate. That doesn't necessarily mean that you should go and procreate with that person immediately. Um, and so <laughs> I think, you know, this, I think, you know, people want it like, you know, your biology firing off like it says like you like them and it's the release of happy hormones. And this is why sex feels good. So you want to do it. Mm. You know, this is why your body says these things. Because if it didn't, then we'd be like, no, nah, stuff that. I'm just going to like sit over here and throw some rocks against a wall or something, right? <laughs> um, so there is biology and programming done to you. But mm. fr from my perspective, once you're aware more and more of what the programming has been done, you can watch it happening. So mm. you can say, oh, my biology says procreate with that person. That doesn't mean that I love that person or that I have a crush on them. It's just doing what my biology says to do. Mm. Enjoy your biology. Like I like when it fires off and says, ooh, yummy food. You know, great. But that doesn't mean I love food, you know, and therefore I need to procreate with food. Um, it's, <laughs> but, you know, it's the same sort of thing. It's just weird stories. Uh, so I, I hope that we are transcending our biology and that we can see what it does so we can lean into it and extract the happiness your biology gives you. But we don't have to be run by our biology. Yeah, so like um, taking that interesting insight into Duncan's uh, brain, uh, I, I think uh, what's like incredibly interesting is like we primarily identify ourselves as sentient beings and, and what I mean by that is we're driven we think of ourselves as being driven purely by our conscious um, mind but underneath all of this is a subconscious and very much chemically driven set of instincts that have been wired into us since the dawn of man and that's very much to what um, points you just talked about now, Duncan, around, you know, survival instincts, part of surviving is procreating, and these are actual cues that are uh, wired into our brain that fire off at times that we don't even fully understand. Um, and then the second point is calling, bringing yourself to become aware of those is the first step to being able to, I don't, I don't think like controlling them is the, is the right word, but in terms of like truly understanding what it is that is like what that that you are running on you know like the hardware of your software is the meat sack right <laughs> um mm. but but it's also the, the the neural network of your brain and all of the different layers to it um and so i think this is a really really powerful notion to suggest that while we have two hundred thousand um, plus years of programming in our brain what separates us from the animal kingdom is this newly formed sense of agency that can sit on top of that and how we can actually utilize that to transcend the physical limitations of a survival type instinct.
Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that humans, in some respects, are a biochemical operating system. Um, and they have a lot of bugs. And the biggest bug of all is it doesn't know it has bugs. So uh, yeah, you, yeah. you are a, I am a logical machine and I make the same decisions. It doesn't matter if I'm tired or not, or if my body says procreate with that one and not procreate with that one, you know, I'm going to make the same decisions. And so if you're not aware of the programming that's done from your biology, biological perspective, or, or for instance, from your social perspective, like what does society say to do? I would say that, you know, make lots of money and, you know, et cetera, or whatever else it is. And or you're around you, your parents did some programming to you as an example, mm. then you subconsciously conflate your feelings. So for instance, you're, you have, what's a crush? I mean, you like someone. What is love? It's a feeling. Just it's this happy feeling. Okay, well, body says procreate with that person. And then there's two things. Lust is you just want to procreate with them. Love is want to procreate plus you like their mind, right? And so it's just the feeling <laughs> times a story. But you don't know that that you're wired to do this. And so what you do is you subconsciously conflate the feeling the biology tells you with a I story, which means I love this person. Um, and then you go off on the narrative that you've been fed from society, you know, since day dot. Mm. Um, so for me, um, this is really interesting. I think we're sort of going off on a slight tangent. <laughs> um, but, you know, ultimately, you know, do you want to live forever? And, and I think the answer is if you have a good life, and big one of those is if each year is better than the year before, but you can't sort of know. And so I think you need to have biology be okay, social be okay, psychological be okay. Um, and I think maybe we could touch on this, but like purpose is, is a huge hack for this inside of there. Mm, yeah, absolutely. But I think also just to your point about like living a good life, well, consider the alternative. Like consider, like actually try and wrap your minds around, like it, it, this hurts when I try and do it, what it would actually mean to live forever, right? I'm not talking about, well, a couple of millennia, like that would be, you know, a, a very, very long time. Like there's, um, uh, there's an amazing write-up around the number called Graham's number. Uh, and Graham's number is just mind-bendingly, like it, it is um, what, they, what mathematicians say as the biggest possible way to conceptualize the biggest actual number there is. Um, but even that, it doesn't even hold a candle to the concept of forever, which is really what we're talking about here. Um, but it goes back to what it means to be human, right? So I don't know how we would um, actually approach it as in terms of like, well, if humans had always been eternal or if let's say we flick a switch tomorrow and suddenly everyone starts living forever, like what that would actually do. Um, to our physical makeup, to our social construct, to the way in which we move through the world. Because like one way of looking at it is like the fact that we're aware that we are finite, that we have a scarce resource called time, I think is what actually is the core driver for a lot of the thing that, that compels us to, to grow, to create, um, to be able to appreciate as well. Hmm. So I think another model that, you know, good life equals health plus friends plus enough money plus a purpose. And what is a purpose? And I think one of the easiest hacks for purpose, and I'll link to a blog that I wrote in, in the notes, is Shameless to help plug. make the world better than it currently is in an area. So, for instance, you might try to make education better. You might try to make better entertainment. You might try to give a better life for your children than you had. Um and so it's not just that oh, I want a sugar high or like let's go and like play Monopoly with James or something. 
Um, and that if you are able to make progress on this, so for instance, you are able to make the world better in that area, then you start to derive value from it. And so again, I did learning without any sort of meaning. It was just learning for learning's sake. Now I do learning so that I can help make the world better. And the learning went from being boring and just doing it to try to get some grade to like, oh my God, can I learn more about this? This is awesome. And so I think a life with purpose is much better than a life without. And that a hack for getting purpose is to make well better in, in a certain place than it was where, where you found it. And so I didn't know this. I don't know. I thought the purpose was to make money. Uh, that to me isn't the goal. You know, money is a second order outcome of helping making the world better. It's not the primary outcome. Mm. Mm. Um, and so try to like, let's think about this from, I guess, from a macro perspective, because what, what I mean, what I always try to to use by way of a mental model is so what is the difference between the purpose of the individual and the purpose of the collective human race? Right. So um, to put it in another way is so Duncan, you put forward like, you know, if we can all find meaning in a way in which we can just simply make the world a better place, how does that apply across every single human being? Well, that would be a monumental, uh, you know, shift in everybody's livelihood if we all started, you know, adopting that particular approach. Uh, and so that's something I find, you know, really interesting. And uh, Tim Urban from Wait But Why calls it the human giant, which is a very, very... Human colossus. The human colossus. Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is a very, very deep rabbit hole. And I think we'll talk about that at great length um, at a later stage. But the idea of us as individuals, as opposed to us as a collective society or species... I don't think it's actually that different. And that's why I think it actually makes a very, very, um, I, I, for want of a better word, makes a very poignant <laughs> observation that by way of finding purpose for ourselves, we find purpose for us as a human, as a human race as a whole. Yeah, this is an interesting one. Like, I think for a lot of people, purpose comes from giving their children a better outcome than they had, hopefully, or mm. trying to give them the best life possible. Um, and I think that's legit. Um, and so, for instance, identity politics is that your identity defines who you are. So, for instance, you being a male and you being white and you being whatever from privilege. It's like all three bad. Like if you're white, you should feel guilty. If you're a minority, you know, minority is better. If, if you're a male, you should feel guilty. Female, fine. You know, if you're privileged, you should feel guilty. If you're, you know, poor, you should feel fine type thing. Have you um, checked your privilege today, Duncan? <laughs> now, I think that... If you, for instance, destroyed all of the something, you know, but some of the people, the only reason, reason people work hard, as an example, is to give their children a better outcome. And if you weren't able to do that, they'd be like, well, what's the point? Uh, you know, I'm going to stop doing this because if I can't help them. Um, and so I think that ultimately different people start at different points in life. Um, we should have affirmative action to try to help others that are less fortunate. But that if you are given a good start to life, that's not something you should necessarily feel guilty about. Um, you should make sure that you make bloody good use of the place that you were given and then you try to help others improve their point, starting mm. point. Um, and so I think identity politics has been done a little bit badly. Um, it's like, oh my God, you did you know, very well financially. Why? So I could help my kids. Okay, now they're privileged and they have to feel guilty and you should feel bad because you did a good job to help your children. Um, and so to me, I'm not saying that you should not understand that people have different starting points and that we shouldn't work for affirmative action. But I also think that if somebody made money, for instance, in a way that helped make the world better and then were able to 
give part of that to their children, I think that's not a bad thing. And that they, you know, for instance, I don't know, that their children shouldn't feel guilty because their parents did well or something. Mm, yeah, so taking a, a political lens on this discussion now, so uh, I, I mean, identity politics, I think, is an egalitarian society done bad. <laughs> um, oh, interesting. Because to, you know, to the point that you raised, by identifying ourselves as the very characteristics that we have no control over, it almost dooms us in a way in which that we don't have control over our own fate. Whereas opposed to being able to, I guess, raise those aspects up to a level where we can then say, well, this is what I was given. And we can all, I guess, you know, acknowledge that as a starting point, but not choose to let that define us in a certain way. And I think, and so this is another really, really powerful aspect of um, the concept emergence or in... Um, more, I guess, general speak, you know, tribal thinking. And that's what identity politics is kind of the role it's playing today, which is that tribal aspect of, well, let's all get around this ideology where people who are in a privileged position must now atone for that, which is what you said, like an affirmative action reversal on those who have been enslaved over history um, as opposed to being privileged. Yeah, we're going down a, a politics rabbit hole. I think where did part of this come from? Inequality has gone up uh, in places like America. Um, and so that means that the pie has been growing, but the pie hasn't been split in what I would believe is an equitable fashion. For instance, people at the top have been taking more than they should. And even though people at the bottom have been getting more than they, you know, they might have had 30 years ago, it's not in a fair way, and they're unhappy. Um, and this is a fair thing. And so there should be redistribution, in my opinion, more redistribution. Um, and... It's easier to divide than it is to unite. So like, oh my God, these people blah, 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 are evil. But then, you know, to me, that's identity politics. Politics is an easy way to divide. There's this group and that group and that group screwed you, therefore hate that group. Mm. Um, now, I think all else equal, you know, we should be thinking about more uh, sort of, you know, redistribution, but sort of changing sort of gears slightly. I think we're sort of come to the point, like if you had good biology, you know, health, uh, you know, friends, enough money and a purpose, why wouldn't you want to live forever? Each year could be better than last year. Okay, cool. Well, is this going to be possible? Well, they say that, you know, technology is advancing and that each year humans live longer than the year before. And so at some point, the amount that we live is going to be more than a year longer than a year. So we never catch up to the point where it actually goes, you know, it's off, you know, where it stops. So in other words, human life expectancy expands faster in one year, 1.1 years than one year. And so this is not a question of if, but a question of when to most people. And James and I are 35, so they say that we're either the first generation to live forever or the last generation to die. It's like, okay, this is really interesting. So it's really conceivable um, that we live forever. Um, and if you can, well, you know, what does that mean and what shifts? And so I think that every year can be better than last year <laughs> and you'll be at an anti-age. It's not like, oh, you got to 80 and now you just have to continue on being 80 and you've got a decrepit body. But no, that doesn't make your body perfect. Sweet. Okay, we'll get out of this, you know, this body. So if this is the case, do things change? And so, for instance, I think a lot of people have purpose by helping to give their children a better outcome. But if you live forever, do you want to have children or not? Because if you then have, you have you know, infinite population, right? Because no one ever dies, so the population never goes down. Can you get purpose not from through giving your children a better life, which I think is probably the outcome for a lot of people that's where they get the most amount of purpose in their life and my answer is yes 
Um, and I think you can help make the world better for others. It doesn't have to be for your specific offspring because they've got a nicer house to live in and you know, more expensive food or something. It can be the quality of life goes up for everybody involved. So I suppose, James, do you have thoughts on whether you, know, you can get purpose beyond children? Right. So uh, first of all, um, you, know, the, you can't put the two space back in the tube for me. Like this is, the, <laughs> I'm already down this rabbit hole in terms of... Oh, no, I'm not saying that children aren't great, but you, I'm not saying there are yeah, other yeah, places yeah. where you can get purpose too. So where I'm really trying to wrap my head around is kind of like this N plus one um, state of uh, you know, purpose in, a, in an infinite lifespan. Uh, for, for me, the, the key driver is, has always been growth, and that is to you know, build upon what you know today or who you are as a person and strive to be better you know, tomorrow or next year. Um, put that along an infinite spectrum, and then it, my brain starts hurting very, very quickly. <laughs> um, to answer your question quickly, yes, of course you can have purpose without children. I think it goes back to the very rudimentary um, uh, instinctual nature of us wanting to procreate so that we can ensure that um, you know our species you know us as a species do survive um, you know it, it's been put forward that you know it, it is really driven by our genes to want to reproduce so that it ensures its own survival well if survival mm. was ensured um, I'm sure after about 100 to a million years the genes would adapt to not wanting to have to feel the compulsion for reproduction because it's uh, it, recognize that it is already in an, in an internal state um but by that point in which like you said duncan have we left our bodies in which case we don't have genes anymore what does that look like so all of these different kinds of parameters around well what does it mean to be human in the first place but then you take the next level up to well what does it mean to be <laughs> and, and and those kinds of elements are to me where it really gets uh, foggy because I think to be human requires a human body, right? Our brain isn't just neurons um, in a jar. It's actually connected to every single cell in our body. Like, you know, you can, you can see the nerves go all the way down your spine and into all the other kind of areas. So like, it's not like you can just take a carbon copy of your brain, put it in the computer and there goes you. Um, there's a whole um, like travesty of, and I said that word too many times this day. It must be my word of the week. Uh, there's a yeah travesty. Uh, there's a whole other. Uh, there's a whole semblance of other components that go into this that makes it really really difficult to actually wrap my head around. So like, if you have mm. some thoughts on that, by all means. But like, yeah. I, th I think um, okay. it, yeah, well, it, go. There's heaps. Um, so first of all, just this, like, if you don't realize that your biology has programming in it, then you're being run by it. So again. We want to procreate. When you see someone of the sex you're attracted to, you want to procreate with them. Sex feels good, etc. So this means that, for instance, advertising for Coca-Cola, which has got attractive people, that's not them creating something that doesn't exist. They're just playing off the inbuilt wiring inside of you because this is what made the human race better. You know, What's attractive? Typically athletic people because they're more likely to be able to go and catch food and stay alive. So it's and just have all good built genes. into a... Yeah, it's exactly right. So it's, it's built into our wiring. So advertising basically plays off what's biologically wired into you. Um, and it's just amplifying a, an existing thing. Um, you said that um, mental, you know, the, the, the goal is to get better. I'm like, no, no, a goal to, with a purpose. Like you could get better at, I don't know, making carbon emissions or, you know, <laughs> get, you know killing people or something. You know, good to help make the world better. And so I think this is really interesting. 
Um, before the Industrial Revolution, the vast majority of jobs were all physical related. So you were a farmer or you were hunting or something, right? And so if you were a great farmer, you might have been like three times better than an average farmer. If you're a great hunter, maybe you're like five times better. But now it's all, well not all, most jobs are mentally based. And your ability to cultivate your mind is, in my opinion, much more than it is to cultivate your body. Like, yes, you can be stronger. Yes, you can run faster, but you can't run a thousand times faster than somebody else, the average human. But if you look at this, some humans, for instance, earn a million times more than other humans, like the, the, the most high earning humans on earth. Are they a million times more you know, valuable? Possibly. I'm not saying it's exactly right. But if your mind is the thing that's being leveraged, its ability for your mind to have upside is wildly more than your body to have upside. Mm. And so, for instance, if you, I don't know, create Tesla or something and you stop climate change uh, or significantly shift the, you know, the time that we get to the point where we're you know, not emitting you know, carbon or carbon dioxide, um, this means that you can, for instance, be worth $20 billion, which is what I think sort of roughly around Elon is worth. And that's, you know, the average person's worth, I don't know, $2,000. <laughs> and so you're, you know, a few thousand times better. Um, so it's possible um, that, that your mind can be wildly more upgraded than your body. And if you live forever, that, in my opinion, there's no ceiling. Like, whereas I think the amount of like you can build your body to get strong or you can jump, you know, or you can run fast, there is a limit. But there isn't a limit in your mind. And so one of the arguments that I like is that if we were to live forever... Like the best people are upgrading their mind, you know, but I think some people, for instance, unfortunately don't really ever get past go. They, they have the upgrades that are done to them at school and then they never really do any of their own free volition. But if you live forever, your mind is, doesn't just sort of cap out. There's no asymptote. It can get better. And so this means that a good human today's mind can do a thousand times what an average human can do. But that's sort of, you know, as they go on with life, you know, they've gotten better and better at this. If you can live forever... Our minds might be a thousand times better each hundred years, you know, mm-hmm. just bang, bang, bang. And so this is going to change what humanity can do. Yeah. So I, I guess to the, the key challenge to that um, contention, um, it, what, it, what, is, what is it that constitutes a mind, right? So I think the, the argument, and correct me if well, I'm wrong outlook, here. Say this, your outlook could be better. Yeah. Well, yeah, but um, I think you're trying to say that you can make a clear distinction between what your consciousness is and what your physical um, construction is, right? So given the fact that we don't even know what consciousness is, like, what it, like how does that actually work? Um, it is, it emerges, what we do know that it emerges, well, as, as far as we can tell anyway, it emerges from our physical construct. Um, so the point I'm getting to here is, so like there was a really, really good, conversation between Sam Harris and a fellow called Robert um, Sapowski talking about the difference between your thoughts and your emotions and that people used to think that you could separate the two and by you know what we were talking about before which is like well observe your emotions and therefore you can kind of create this um, this this agency but what um, he is saying is that like there are two sides of the one coin you can't have one without the other you're inexperienced strictly linked to how the emotional um, wiring functions within your um, the brain's architecture, um, and and they talked about um, this in like incredible detail. But one of the areas where they used as an example was around well, we can clearly show that when these particular emotions or these parts of the brain that drive these emotions are triggered or have a tumor growing in them it will 
directly cause a conscious response. So like it is controlling not only how you think, but what you think. Yes, I think no one's saying that your hardware doesn't matter, um, i.e. that your mind and if it's got a tumour in there that's not going to affect it or that, for instance, if your hormonal balance is different or if you're tired, it doesn't change. I suppose the point was that there's also the software mm. and right now we don't really have the ability to mess with the hardware too much, but we do have the ability to mess with the software a lot and that's just like you know, your reading or your experiences times your processing of them and that you can upgrade them massively. And so I suppose... If I look at 20-year-old Duncan versus 35-year-old Duncan, the difference is that I think I've cultivated my mind significantly. Like I'm the same height, I'm roughly the same weight. I don't think I can run fast. I can sort of run slower. You know, I probably think all else equal, my hardware's degraded, but my software's gone up massively. Mm. And so my ability to be able to create value, to have meaning, to have purpose, to interact with James on many levels. There was one level to interact on before, entertainment. Now there's like more and more levels every year. Mm. And th there is no limit to this um, th that I can really see. Uh, there's no upside. And so this is the coolest thing ever. The fun I have now wasn't the best conception that I could have. It's like, oh my God, like you uh, drive around in a fancy car or something. Um, it, it, it is beyond conception. And I, I'm not saying like, I don't think we need to get into how does the human mind work? It's not relevant to me. It's, has it been able to be upgraded? I know it has, Right. And is there any limit to this? In my understanding, no. And the limit is what upgrades you have done. And so effectively, why wouldn't you want to live forever if you can have each year be better than the year before? Um, and so I think, yeah, um, this is really cool. And it will mean things that massively change. So I mm. think so many things that we do are based on the fact that time is finite now. And I think as an example, children is one of them. So the average person in America now has a marriage that lasts longer than in colonial times. Colonial times last like 1600s. And this means that death is, sorry, divorce is a replacement for death. People used to die. <laughs> and so for instance, <laughs> you know, the actual, you know, if you want to have children and maximize offspring, then, you know, having a marriage is better than not. One person is worse than two people, right? Um, but you don't need to be, if you're going to live till you're 100, that's certainly, well, it depends when you have the children, but like, I don't know, let's just say you have them when you're 30. You probably don't have 70 years of needing to like really hold their hand tightly. Or perhaps if you're me, because I'm pretty useless. Um, but <laughs> do, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, and so it basically like, would you want to have children? One, you know, if you do, do does the idea of a, a relationship only make sense because you're having children? If you didn't have children, would you get married? Mm. Do you have a relationship for all of your life? Like, so I think, for instance, and I'm sorry I've talked too long. Most people are after one majority lifelong partner, i.e. the you know, majority of their time, let's say call it 70%, a lifelong partner. But I think a big part of that is based on the fact they're going to have children and there's going to be this better outcome of shared responsibility than individual. But if you live forever, do you want that? And I'm like, well, I think I want to have a series of minority lifelong partners for say 75% of my time, James being one of which, and then 25% new blood. Hmm. And so I don't think I want to have children. Um, I reserve the right to change my mind. Um, I think that they can be a wonderful, meaningful thing to have, but I don't think that's the only place you can get meaning. So first of all, super appreciate the uh, the, 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 
the simplistic replacement of death with divorce. So that's, that's a nice one, hey? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think like, okay, so let's go back in the it's unpack. an optimal solution for a certain job, not necessarily your entire life. I'm pretty or sure. It's a better, yeah. yeah, I'm pretty sure some people would argue that divorce is pretty much tantamount to death anyway. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, like going back to your question, like, you know, if, if survival wasn't part of the equation, right? If it wasn't a requirement, um, procreation would I want to have children anyway um, to the best of my abilities I would still answer yes because mm -hmm. to me um, having children is kind of like being exposed to one of the most exciting parts of life and that is witnessing its birth and it's coming into the world and it finding its own way within that world Right, like you know, you like you said, Duck, and you can't remember anything from, since the time you were five. Um, so that kind of is not that kind of time is not available to you other than in the deep recesses of your subconsciousness. However, having children for yourself means you get to witness what happens uh, at that particular juncture, and how a you know a new conscious being comes into this world and and makes you know sense of it all for themselves. So it's not like you know, you're you're sitting back and you're playing God from from such a from a certain perspective, but you do get this incredible vantage point of being able to witness life outside of yourself, the unfolding of um, a human being who grows before your very eyes rapidly. I might add. I mean, I don't think I look different than than I did five years ago, but my God, I had this tiny little, um, you know postnatal fetus that is now walking around and talking and making all of these other kind of interesting uh, in engagements. So um, to answer your question, like I would still very much like to have children because I think that to me is like one of the richest experiences that you can have in life. Mm. So I, I had a couple of thoughts here. Um, I don't know. Can you get more from looking at something long term than short term? For sure. Um, so I don't know. If it's 100 hours, there's a possibility for more meaning than one hour. But it also could be 100 hours of bad. So I think watching someone grow up and change can be a really, really interesting thing to be part of. But for some people, it's literally just observing. But initially, they're like, okay, I'm going to change the nappies and make sure that they're not hungry. And then I'm going to watch what they do. Wonder where this story goes. Don't know what the end's like, mm. right? And that's better than them just turning on reality TV and you know, trying to you know, make sure they're not lonely. But I, I think that doesn't necessarily mean that you should have children. <laughs> I think my definition of children is someone you meaningfully affect, a child, right? Mm. That doesn't have to be your progeny. Um, and I think that if you're not a meaningfully affecting people, hopefully one of whom is yourself, then you're leaving a lot of possible enjoyment and, and, and meaning and happiness on the table. Um, and I think that for a lot of people, the only people they meaningfully affect are their children. They don't meaningfully affect their friends. They just kind of hang out and have a laugh. And they're at work only because they have to earn money. Mm. Um, and so this is more meaningful than the other things and therefore the most valuable thing in their life. But it's not actually necessarily the only place you can get meaning mm. or, for instance, the highest place you can get meaning. Mm. So it's le less bad <laughs> or neutral, but it's not necessarily good. And so all else equal, as I said, like James and my friendship is not the best I could imagine when I was 20. It's beyond anything I could conceive. Hmm. For a lot of people, children is better than their work. That doesn't make children great. It's just an indictment of their existing job, as an example. Now, a job can be horrible or a job can be great. Children can be horrible 
children can be great. You know, there's, there's a sort of different outcome. And so for, for me, I do think you want to help make the world better. One way is through helping make your child's life better. You know, I think all else equal, if you spend more time with a friend than less, you have the opportunity to have more meaning. And mm -hmm. in some respects, a child is a friend, but you live with them and you get to see all these things. So it could be, but I don't know if you necessarily need to have children. Yeah. So I think, uh, Duncan, to your point around questioning the, the inherent value of this, um, something can be good or something can be bad. I don't think um, gets us any further in that conversation. So just because you could have, you know, a good relationship with your children or a bad relationship doesn't serve as an argument for why you should or shouldn't have children. Um, because I think that's the same in any um, field in life. Like, you know, if you wanted to go out and make the world a better place by, um, you know, building a, an aquifer, well, you can do that good or bad, um, ad, ad infinitum. So I guess another way of looking at it is that like, what is, like, what are we all, like, what is all of this for, right? Um, when we try to think about, well, having purpose, which is going out and making the world better than it was before or than were it not. One, one hack. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, what what are we driving this to? Like, what is this actually leading us? What path are we trying to lead this down? And so, this goes back to my um, my model of the individual versus the collective or the, or the um, colossus, so to speak, right? Um and like without trying to get it into go too metaphysical, I'll try and keep it within the practical realm as much as possible. But you said something really, really helpful, and that was how your 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 conception of life has fundamentally trans um, like transcended since you were twenty five because of your understanding of just what it means to have a rich relationship, right? So it was quite binary. It was just hedonistic. Um, to a degree, mm, whereas, whereas now it's really, um, you know, there's, there's a lot more richness and depth and meaning towards it. My contention, or at least my belief in why I think um, having children is an incredible experience is because it's, a, it's that times a thousand. Like my understanding of myself, my understanding of what it means to be like, you know, a living, breathing human being fundamentally changed the moment I became a parent because of like beforehand my I guess my sole motivator was a singular existence like and maybe um, you know to stretch it out was to live a happy existence with my with my partner but that has just completely gotten turned on its head when my identity went from a singular to plural the moment I began having children now that doesn't mean you have to procreate yourself that's really just your genes telling you that you need to pass it on but it's that, it's that same idea of, well, what, what will it take for you to be able to stretch how you identify yourself beyond the singular, which is your single body, and outwards into something else beyond that. And to me, that's what parenting has done for me. That has created this sense of identity that, it's got, that has transcended my own human body and the learnings and the experience that I have that the depths of introspection that I have the the sheer level of um, like feelings around what we call love and my experience of that has like has changed like at a foundational level so mm. having this experience of life knowing what it is like before and after um, is in like to me it's kind of like one of those you know things that you know you you'll be able to 
experience all of these different kinds of areas, this is to me one uh, foundational part of it. Cool. Um, so some people say that humans are a slave to their limbic system. So the limbic system is where your emotions kick off. So basically, you just want to have happy emotions happen, i.e. release good feeling. And we don't care how we get it. Eat chocolate. Feel good. Um, so for a lot of people, love is the best feeling because that, that they've, they've ever felt, right? It, it's not just, uh, oh, God, I ate chocolate. Now I'm going to have a heart attack. Uh, it, it is feeling good with a good story. And so they want to have as much love in their life as possible. And this is so love is, is happiness you give to yourself in some respects. Mm. So sometimes it's biologically wired. Oh, my God, see person I'm attracted to feel crush. You know, other times it's story based. Win the grand final of a sporting match, cry tears of happiness. Lose the grand final, cry tears of sadness. Nobody hit you in the leg and made you cry or gave you the best piece of chocolate and made you cry from happiness. You bought on <laughs> the most strong emotions possible yourself. Okay, so with children, I would argue there's the strongest, deepest story. So love is the best feeling you've ever felt, supposedly, right? And there's two ways it comes. So let's just say there's love which is given and unconditional to a child. You give it, it's unconditional. You're never taking it back. Hmm. And then there's the other one, which is love, which is earned and conditional, which is the typical story around a romantic one. Are you good enough for me to love you? Are you going to continue to have good enough for me to continue wanting to give you love or not? We're getting a divorce. And so one, you're constantly saying, are you making me whole? Are you giving me this value? Um, and the other one, you're not. And so I would say that it's conceivable for a lot of people, the best feeling they have is driven, i.e. the best thing they can get their limbic system to fire off, is through children. And this is because of the story of given and unconditional love versus, for instance, a romantic partner, earned and conditional. And so this is what they associate with the best thing in their life because it's the best feeling. Now, I don't necessarily think this makes children the most valuable thing. I think you can have... If you like something, good feelings happen, right? But you can associate feeling with whatever you want. You just need to put a story around it. So you helping somebody can help you be happy if you decide that it's worth that. You winning the grand final can have the strongest feeling you have because your whole life you've decided that it's really important to win the grand final. This has got nothing to do with our biology. There were people playing sport games, you know, 200 years ago and doing this is the best way. It's a story. And so anyways, I think that conceivably, if you're trying to hack your limbic system, the easiest hack for a lot of people is children. And that's because of the story that society gives them. That's not necessarily making it the best way to live life, but it might be the best way they can know to fire off happy hormones. Mm. Well, first of all, they've all been deceived because let me tell you, have child rearing is no picnic. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that the story doesn't make you happy, that the pain isn't worth it. So hardship plus meaning equals growth. Hardship with no meaning equals suffering. Yeah. So it's uh, not saying that b bad stuff can't make you feel good, quote unquote. Mm. Anyways, also, I've got to make sure we drive off. So... Maybe one more comment and then a summary. <laughs> okay, so I think just to, to that point, um, those who are being subconsciously or unconsciously, I should say, driven by their, um, their primal instincts, I don't think you having children um, in the same way as someone who is trying to derive meaning from it. I think there are, um, you know, to be grossly oversimplistic, people who procreate simply because that's what they've always um, thought that they needed to do you know kind of like the stories we're told around well you need to find someone get married get a picket fence and like have a career kind of thing well this is just a story that your um, you know that your limbic system that your subconscious is telling you as opposed to like well why right 
if you if you if you don't have a clear why, then you are not going to invest yourself in this process. In my opinion, anywhere near as deeply as someone who is just finding out for the first time how utterly, utterly exhausting and time-consuming and hard it really is to do well. Um, some, someone says, like, being a parent doesn't change you, it reveals you. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so what it is that you're going into this, uh, you know, process with, I think, has a, a significant impact on how it is that you become or you um, un unveil yourself throughout that process. But I, I won't. I won't go on because we've gone over. So I think we need to get on to summary. Cool. Um, so I think it's very conceivable that you would want to live forever. Um, but I think that to do that, you need to build a life that means you can hope to have each year be better than the year before. And this means learning about yourself in the world and realizing that a lot of what you thought in the past was wrong. Um, but I think part of this learning, which we sort of talked about, is that you know, you've got a biochemical operating system and it's got all this wiring and you can just be having the happiness and the stories, you know, of the Olympic system from a biological perspective and the story society tells you, run you. That the programming that they've done to you, you're unaware of. And so it says that this is North, i.e. Olympic system release happy hormones here. And this is South, i.e. Olympic release, you know, release unhappy. And you just let that compass, the compass of your biology and the compass of society drive you. Um, the other side is, should we have everyone? And I think actually... This is something that's seeing like people who are not good can amass power. Like honestly, in my opinion, you know, Putin and Xi Jinping, and yeah, don't hurt me. I'm like sometimes <laughs> the, those people, like the only reason they're going to get not be in power doing bad things is because they don't live forever. And so I think actually, whilst we are probably going to be able to live forever at some point, it might actually be a net negative for the world because some people can get in positions which they can, can't be removed from and can inflict pain on humanity at large. Um, so whilst some people might be able to do really good, actually the chance of it being bad is more than offset by the chance of it being good. <laughs> and so, I don't know. Um, you know, I don't particularly feel like I should want to die, um, but I also don't particularly want bad people out there able to inflict pain on others indefinitely. Um, I don't really know, um, you know, but I, I, I honestly believe each year of my life has been better than the year before. <laughs> All right. Well, good place to leave up there, Duncan. So this is where Duncan and I, um, on a healthy level, uh, differ, I guess, in, 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 some, in, in some areas. So for me, what it means to live forever, um, you know, I guess from a physiological standpoint or anthropologically, it's really our genes compelling us to uh, survive long enough to procreate. Uh, and that is basically our bodies not wanting to die. Um, Philosophically, or more so ontologically, um, what it means to live forever, I think, goes against the very nature of life itself. And so, you know, when you think about the universe, it came from nothing, or at least a very singular point, uh, and then it burst into life with all of the things um, like transpiring in, in before us right now. Life is part of that story, and from like for me, for life to be able to function in a perpetual way, I think there is this constant state of renewal, which is, I guess, actualized through death and birth and rebirth and whatnot. Um, to be able to conceptualize what it means to, well, the, the ability to have an eternal life or to live forever, I think completely goes against what it means to be human. 
Um, I don't personally think you can separate your consciousness from your body. I don't think it's going to be possible to uh, you know, lift us into a computer. I think it will be possible to make a copy, um, but that's not, you know, um, the copy and I could coexist, so therefore there, um, there goes not I, so to speak. Um, but part of all of this is how we derive meaning from, I guess, whether it's existence or our lives themselves. And like whether or not it's purely driven by the um, the primal instincts in our bodies to want to re reproduce or whether it's driven by the stories that we create for ourselves, I think all of those different kinds of meanings uh, are based on the foundation of impermanence. And the idea that all you have is right now, um, but you, you won't have it forever. And so that kind of uh, like evolutionarily speaking, drives us to want to make something out of this thing that we have called life. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> All right, wonderful. Um, well, James, pleasure speaking to you as always. Um, and we'll speak soon about some topic. <laughs> 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 um, cool, dude. Uh, catch up. Bye.